This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In many ways, this whole radio project was directly inspired by the presidency and post-presidency of Jimmy Carter, the 39th president of the United States. Soon after the 9-11 attacks in the U.S. in 2001, Suzanne Kreider and I began planning a series of programs that would explore peacemaking in a detailed way. We first envisioned it as a series of auditorium programs with icons of peacemaking. And the first name on our list of hoped-for guests was Jimmy Carter. Lack of early funding caused us to shrink our vision as we started our program in 2002 locally in New Mexico. But we continued to court President Carter, and in 2002 we were allowed a short interview with him as he marked the 20th anniversary of his Carter Center, and the center being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. Good morning, this is Jimmy Carter. The, the center's efforts to address hunger, uh, poor health, and oppression around the world obviously ring true to the humanitarian in each of us, but your books and talks make a connection between these desperate conditions and conflict and war in countries that can ultimately impact everyone on the globe. Could you talk about that a little bit and, and offer some examples? Well, one of the things that I've learned in the last 20 years since I left the White House, much more clearly than I did when I was president, is that there's no way to separate, you know, a commitment to justice and peace and freedom and democracy and human rights and environmental equality and the alleviation of suffering. So that's why we have seen that in order to maintain peace in a country, you really have to deal with the most uh, abject facets of life because quite often when people have no hope and no self-respect and no prospect for a bare existence, they tend to turn to anger and begin a, a civil war or lash out at their neighbors. So you, you can't separate the alleviation of suffering or environmental degradation where they lose their land and lose their streams from their inclination to despise their leaders or even to hate you know, distant success stories like in America. So they're all interrelated. That's the best basic point. I wonder if you could recount one or two personal moments that are etched in your mind as emblematic of the good that the Carter Center has been able to do over 20 years. Any faces or encounters kind of stand out? Well, a number of them. For instance, guinea worm is one of the most horrible diseases ever known on Earth. And when we started to eradicate guinea worm, and this has been the Carter Center, one of the Carter Center's projects, uh, we, we found 3.5 million cases in 22 countries, uh, about 23,000 villages. We've been in every one of those villages and taught the people what caused the disease, drinking filthy water, as a matter of fact, and, and how to correct it. And now we've cut that down from 3.5 million to about 70,000, which, as you can see, is a 98% reduction. And so to go into a village and see people, maybe two-thirds of the total population, unable to walk around, lying on, on, on the ground with guinea worms coming out of their bodies and to teach them how to correct it and go back a year later and there will be zero guinea worm. And those people, for the rest of their lives, will never see another case of guinea worm. So this is a very gratifying thing. One time I was riding in a big entourage uh, with the leaders of a, of a state in Nigeria and there was a big sign on the side of the road that I'll always remember held up by little school children and said, watch out, guinea worms, here comes Jimmy Carter. So, you know, that really is a kind of memorable thing that I remember. We've done the same thing with other diseases, 
including rebel blindness and trachoma that causes blindness. And so it's very uh, gratifying to me to go into those countries and see what a little bit of advice and a tiny bit of help will do to let them overcome their uh, terrible suffering. Well, and finally, you and Rosalind, as co-directors of the center, talk now about scaling back your active role. Is that a hard process for a couple of action people like you two? And, and what are your hopes for the ongoing future of the center then? Well, we've been doing that over a period of time anyway. Where I, I, Rose and I used to have to do everything at the Carter Center, <clears throat> you know, personnel, budgets, uh, planning, conferences, and everything else. Now other people do that for us. And we, for instance, in this hemisphere, we have 35 other presidents and prime ministers who have served like me in top positions who are part of the Carter Center uh, Council. And when I can't go to, say, Dominican Republic to help hold an honest election, I've got that array of other leaders in this hemisphere that can go and represent the Carter Center there. So it'll be a, a permanent organization. And uh, I think winning the Nobel Peace Prize for the work of the Carter Center, basically, is it, going to help strengthen that prospect for the future. President Jimmy Carter, thanks for your service to the world, and thanks for talking with us today. I've really enjoyed it. Good luck to you all. That's my 2002 conversation with former President Jimmy Carter. I'm Paul Ingalls. Now we present our in-depth profile talk about the former president with Stuart Eisenstadt. Stu Eisenstadt is an American diplomat and attorney. From 1977 to 1981, he was President Jimmy Carter's chief domestic policy advisor and executive director of the White House domestic policy staff. Later, he served as the United States Ambassador to the European Union from 1993 to 1996 and as the United States Deputy Secretary of the Treasury from 1999 to 2001. He's author of the book Jimmy Carter, The White House Years, published in 2018 by Thomas Dunn Books. I asked Stu Eisenstadt what comes to the top of his mind when thinking about President Jimmy Carter. Well, the feeling that comes up uh, as his uh, former chief domestic policy advisor uh, for four years, from 1977 to 81 in the White House, and his policy director in both his gubernatorial and presidential campaigns, is, uh, is someone who uh, accomplished an enormous amount as president, both in the foreign and domestic arenas, which have gone largely unrecognized because of issues that occurred during the administration, like the Iran hostage crisis and high inflation, um, which clouded those accomplishments. But more broadly, what strikes me is that he came into office at a time when there was enormous distrust of the presidency based on Watergate uh, and all of the surrounding scandals. And he ran an unblemished, uh, honest uh, presidency with great integrity that he created a, the modern vice presidency as we know it. He added new ethics laws and conflicts of interest laws and so, in a way, he really helped reestablish, with all the difficulties he had, trust in the institution of the presidency. Well, I want to talk more about those specifics in a minute, but let me go back to your early days. Uh, you were a young lawyer working on Mr. Carter's gubernatorial campaign in Georgia in the early 1970s. You probably knew him before that campaign, too. What do you remember about meeting Jimmy Carter for the first time? And what were some of your earliest memories of him as a person that made you want to work for him in politics? 
I grew up in Atlanta, but I was educated uh, at the undergraduate school at the University of North Carolina, then at Harvard Law School, and went straight from Harvard Law School to the uh, Johnson White House. I was an aide uh, for LBJ uh, on the White House staff. And then when he decided to pull out of uh, a re-election effort in 1968, I became the research director on a full-time basis for Vice President Humphrey's presidential campaign against uh, Richard Nixon. So I had both of those under my belt. He lost, of course, to Richard Nixon, barely. I went back to Atlanta, where I had grown up. I clerked for a federal judge, and it was at that point uh, that I met uh, Jimmy Carter through an Atlanta friend, a longtime friend, Henry Bauer, who said that he thought I should meet this uh, state senator running for governor. And I said, well, Henry, I appreciate it, but uh, one of my first stops after coming back from Washington uh, from the Humphrey campaign was former Governor Carl Sanders, who was going to be running for election. And under the Georgia Constitution, you couldn't run consecutive terms. And I said I was going to work for him, and I really don't think I should uh, meet uh, Jimmy Carter, whoever he is. He insisted. And so uh, really as much to satisfy him as anything else, I, I met with Jimmy Carter. I met him at the, in the Hurt Building, across from the federal courthouse in Atlanta, uh, in a very stark room, a couple of folding chairs. He was dressed in khaki pants and work boots. Uh, and I was immediately struck both by his intelligence, his, uh, his youthful vigor, and from my perspective, more importantly, that here was somebody from southwest Georgia, from a rural area, who understood urban problems, civil rights issues, mass transit issues, housing issues, and I thought, and he argued, could serve as a bridge between the traditional divide in Georgia between rural and, and uh, uh, urban uh, areas of the state. But I still, you know, had this feeling, well, I should really work for Carl Sanders because I committed to him. He called me back a second time, and on the second uh, occasion really made the made the sale. Uh, I called Sanders and told him, and I'm sure he lost no tears over it because he was the odds on favorite, and who was I, some young kid, uh, even with a White House uh, and Humphrey background who he hardly seemed to need. And uh, it was uh, then that I started working for him as, uh, as his policy director on a part-time basis. And so that was my first association with him, and it, I was struck again by his his youthfulness, his vigor. Uh, frankly, his, he, he looked like a southern version of John Kennedy, very handsome. Uh, but again, more importantly, he, he had this capacity to reach out, I thought, between urban and, and, and rural Georgia. Well, those qualities make one think of the title of President John Kennedy's book, Profiles and Courage. What are some things during Jimmy Carter's term in office that might have earned him that title of a profile and courage in general terms. You can talk about some of the specifics later. His presidency was really fascinating from a general standpoint, and we will get to the specifics of his accomplishments, which were really quite enormous. Uh, he had a very interesting approach to the politics of governing. He was a ferocious campaigner, but when he came into office, in an unusual way, he dropped the politics. 
he would say to us, and Ham Jordan, his top aide and later chief of staff, used to joke that the worst way to convince President Carter to do anything is to say it would be politically advantageous. He, he just determined that if he did the right thing from his standpoint and explained it to the public, taking on oftentimes very tough issues, the Middle East, energy where there was uh, hardly anything politically to be gained and a lot to be lost with uh, those groups who uh, held on to very important positions uh, outside of the White House for those uh, issues, for Israel, for the energy industry. Uh, he was willing to, to break his pick on those issues um, and not to worry about the politics of governing. That was his strength because it meant that he wasn't timid. He was, I mean, this notion somehow that he was a weak president is just ridiculous. If anything, he was too strong and too stubborn to take on these issues when, when even Rosalind would say, for example, on the Panama Canal, Jimmy, wait to the second term to do that. You're going to lose a lot politically. And he said, well, I may only have one term. I'm going to do everything I can now. And his, his notion was that he ultimately be rewarded by the voters for seeing that he did take these issues on and accomplish things. Uh, and it's an interesting bifurcation between the politics of, of running for a position and the politics of governing. What's another example of that don't do this, it might be bad politically suggestion where he contradicted that warning from his staff. He was given similar advice, Paul, uh, on two occasions in the Middle East peace process. One was the decision to go to Camp David to bring the two leaders, Begin and Sadat, following uh, President Sadat's historic visit to Jerusalem, their efforts at bilateral negotiations with Prime Minister Menachem Begin of Israel had completely stalled. And uh, Secretary Vance had tried to br bridge the gap. He had met separately with each to try to bridge the gap. And he decided uh, to take an enormous risk, and that is to invite these two leaders who were miles apart on issues to Camp David for a summit. And it ended up lasting 13 days. It's an extraordinary act of personal diplomacy on the part of a president, unprecedented before or after. But it was a great political risk. It caused uh, angst in the Jewish community. It hurt his Jewish support. Uh, it uh, hurt uh, Sadat in, in the Arab world. Um, and again, almost all of his advisors uh, told him not to do it. Likewise, after Camp David and the success of the Camp David Accords, Camp David was a framework. It wasn't a binding uh, treaty. And again, the two parties, Israel and Egypt, were at loggerheads of how to take the next step and convert it into a binding treaty. There were a whole host of thorny issues like the fact that Egypt had dozens of mutual defense agreements with its Arab neighbors uh, that uh, obligated it to, in effect, fight against Israel if there was ever a conflict between Israel and, say, Syria or Lebanon. Uh, and that had to be resolved. And they couldn't. Again, over the objection of his staff, he flew to the region. He spent four to five days there in an extremely risky proposition. I mean, the chances of failure were so great that Ham Churden joked that if we didn't make it, 
uh, he ought to just take Air Force One and land back in Albany and stay there for the rest of his administration. Uh, and yet he decided to go forward, and we have a treaty that's now, you know, over 35 years old. It's never once been violated. It's the basis of U.S. policy in the region. Uh, it's been to Israel's enormous advantage, meant a redeployment of forces and troops to other areas and away from that uh, front. And, and every every Egyptian president, even when uh, President Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood was elected, he pledged to support uh, Camp David uh, and the treaty. So those are examples of deciding that the politics be damned, I'm going to do what I think is the right thing. On the domestic side, another example was in the energy area. He decided to make energy a major priority. Uh, it was a thankless job. Uh, the conflicting pressures between the oil and gas industry on the one hand, the environmental community on the, and consumer community on the other, on deregulating uh, the price of uh, oil and natural gas and, uh, and taking on uh, uh, the environmental issues with coal and so forth, were, were enormously politically charged. And yet he said, I'm going to do it. And he did it. There were three major energy bills which totally transformed the whole energy future of this country. Stu Eisenstadt, in your writing about the president, you maintain that President Carter's presidency was much more significant than most people give him credit for, while acknowledging that he's mostly thought of as overseeing a number of not-quite-realized initiatives. Well, what happened is, if you look at the initiatives, I'm going to say to you, and I, I, I'm, I'm willing to have anyone dispute it, that, if, that it was the most consequential and important four-year presidential term that we've had in modern American history and perhaps in all of American history. So let me just go through a few of these and then come back to why he wasn't rewarded for it. First, he created the modern vice presidency, which had been a total laughable job. No one took it seriously. He and Walter Mondale created what is now the modern vice presidency, engaged in every decision, one-on-one -on -one weekly meetings with the vice president, integrating other staffs, uh, making it a real office. In foreign policy, the Middle East peace process, the first treaty between an Arab state and the state of Israel, the Israel-Egypt agreement based on Camp David, the normalization of relations with the People's Republic of China. Just think where we would be without that, with all the tensions we've had. We, they're one of our biggest trading partners, and we have a dialogue, a capacity of dealing with them because of normalization. Now, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger deserve enormous credit for breaking the ice on that, but they did not normalize because they did not want to alienate the Taiwan lobby. Here again, he was willing to take on another interest and say, well, we're severing our relations with Taiwan and China will be uh, our recognized interlocutor. Human rights, he injected human rights into foreign policy. That was not just rhetoric. You can talk to any small D Democrat in Latin America who threw off military dictatorships and they will tell you that it was his championing of human rights uh, and cutting off arms to the military dictators and places like Chile and Argentina that was transformative. Unfortunately for Jimmy Carter, the benefits of that occurred in the Reagan administration, but he put that policy in place. And the same with the Soviet Union. 
the former Secretary of Defense Gates said one of the great accomplishments of Jimmy Carter was his human rights campaign in respect to the Soviet Union attacking the sort of soft underbelly of the communist uh, regime. In terms of dealing with the Soviet Union, he negotiated a SALT arms control treaty, which reduced nuclear arms on both sides. And while it was never ratified by the Senate because of the Afghanistan invasion, it was maintained by President Reagan and by the Soviets as if it had been ratified for all eight years of the Reagan administration. And one of the transformative events uh, in the Soviet uh, relationship was the Afghan invasion. This convinced him that there was no chance of dealing with the Soviet Union on some of the other issues. And so things like the Olympic boycott, uh, the grain embargo, other sanctions, arming the Mujahideen, the freedom fighters, which President Reagan continued and enhanced, really ended up bogging the Soviet Union down in Afghanistan for, for more than a, uh, 10 years and, and, and was one of the reasons for the unraveling of, uh, of the Soviet Union. On domestic policy, Three major energy bills were transformative. Uh, we ended price controls on natural gas and crude oil, uh, encouraging domestic production. He created a conservation ethic through the gas guzzler tax, fuel efficiency standards for cars, tax credits for insulation, which have made us much more energy efficient and conservation-oriented. It was at his initiative that three in these three energy bills that alternative energy, solar, wind, geothermal, which we take for granted now, that's where it started. He was the greatest conservation president since Teddy Roosevelt, doubled the size of our total national park system uh, with the Alaska lands bill itself, taking on uh, the Alaska interests in the oil and gas industry, created the, the super fund, which cleaned up chemical sites, which we take for granted, uh, put in tough regulations for coal-fired power plants, and uh, took on, again, a thankless political job, these uh, water projects, which were both environmentally damaging and, and, uh, and were very uh, costly. And then on transportation, uh, he deregulated airline and trucking and rail and bus transportation. All of these were enormous accomplishments. We'll have more with Stu Eisenstadt, top advisor to President Jimmy Carter and author of the 2018 book, Jimmy Carter, The White House Years, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. 
We're online with all of our programs going back to 2002. Our series began in the wake of the 2001 terrorist attacks on the U.S. Even in the earliest days of our planning for the series, President Jimmy Carter's commitment to peace, both in the White House and certainly during his post-presidency and his work with the Carter Center in Atlanta, was always a chief inspiration for us to continue our work for a culture of peace through our radio series. In a moment, more with our guest Stu Eisenstadt, author of the 2018 book Jimmy Carter, The White House Years. Mr. Eisenstadt was right there with the president as his executive director of the White House Domestic Policy and is sharing his memories of those years, including Mr. Carter's landmark address to the nation July 15, 1979, called the Crisis of Confidence Speech. Here's an extended excerpt that I have to say sounds like an accurate assessment of the mood in the U.S. for each decade since it was delivered in 1979. Good evening. This is a special night for me. Exactly three years ago, on July 15, 1976, I accepted the nomination of my party to run for President of the United States. I promised you a president who is not isolated from the people, who feels your pain and who shares your dreams, and who draws his strength and his wisdom from you. Ten days ago, I had planned to speak to you again about a very important subject, energy. But as I was preparing to speak, I began to ask myself the same question that I now know has been troubling many of you. Why have we not been able to get together as a nation to resolve our serious energy problem? It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper, deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper even than inflation or recession. So I want to speak to you first tonight about a subject even more serious than energy or inflation. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not mean our political and civil liberties they will endure. And I do not refer to the outward strength of America, a nation that is at peace tonight everywhere in the world with unmatched economic power and military might. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. Our progress has been part of a living history of America, even the world. We always believed that we were part of a great movement of humanity itself called democracy, involved in the search for freedom. And that belief has always strengthened us in our purpose. But just as we're losing our confidence in the future, we're also beginning to close the door on our past. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, 
close-knit communities and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. The symptoms of this crisis of the American spirit are all around us. For the first time in the history of our country, a majority of our people believe that the next five years will be worse than the past five years. Two-thirds of our people do not even vote. The productivity of American workers is actually dropping. And the willingness of Americans to save for the future has fallen below that of all other people in the Western world. As you know, there is a growing disrespect for government and for churches and for schools, the news media, and other institutions. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth and it is a warning. These changes did not happen overnight. They've come upon us gradually over the last generation years that were filled with shocks and tragedy. We were sure that ours was a nation of the ballot, not the bullet, until the murders of John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, Jr. We were taught that our armies were always invincible and our causes were always just only to suffer the agony of Vietnam. We respected the presidency as a place of honor until the shock of Watergate. We remember when the phrase sound as a dollar was an expression of absolute dependability until 10 years of inflation began to shrink our dollar and our savings we believed that our nation's resources were limitless until 1973, when we had to face a growing dependence on foreign oil. These wounds are still very deep. They have never been healed. Looking for a way out of this crisis, our people have turned to the federal government and found it isolated from the mainstream of our nation's life. Washington, D.C. has become an island. The gap between our citizens and our government has never been so wide. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers, clear leadership, not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. What you see too often in Washington and elsewhere around the country is a system of government that seems incapable of action. 
You see a Congress twisted and pulled in every direction by hundreds of well-financed and powerful special interests. You see every extreme position defended to the last vote, almost to the last breath, by one unyielding group or another. You often see a balanced and a fair approach that demands sacrifice, a little sacrifice from everyone, abandoned like an orphan, without support and without friends. Often you see paralysis and stagnation and drift. You don't like it, and neither do I. What can we do? We are at a turning point in our history. There are two paths to choose. One is a path I've warned about tonight, the path that leads to fragmentation and self-interest. Down that road lies a mistaken idea of freedom, the right to grasp for ourselves some advantage over others. That path would be one of constant conflict between narrow interest ending in chaos and immobility. It is a certain route to failure. All the traditions of our past, all the lessons of our heritage, all the promises of our future point to another path, the path of common purpose and the restoration of American values. That path leads to true freedom for our nation and ourselves. We can take the first steps down that path as we begin to solve our energy problem. Energy will be the immediate test of our ability to unite this nation. And it can also be the standard around which we rally on the battlefield of energy. We can win for our nation a new confidence, and we can seize control again of our common destiny. So the solution of our energy crisis can also help us to conquer the crisis of the spirit in our country. It can rekindle our sense of unity, our confidence in the future, and give our nation and all of us individually a new sense of purpose. I do not promise you that this struggle for freedom will be easy. I do not promise a quick way out of our nation's problems, when the truth is that the only way out is an all-out effort. What I do promise you is that I will lead our fight, and I will enforce fairness in our struggle, and I will ensure honesty. Little by little, we can and we must rebuild our confidence. We can spend until we empty our treasuries, and we may summon all the wonders of science, but we can succeed only if we tap our greatest resources, America's people, America's values, and America's confidence. In closing, let me say this. I will do my best, but I will not do it alone. Let your voice 
be heard. Whenever you have a chance, say something good about our country. With God's help and for the sake of our nation, it is time for us to join hands in America. Let us commit ourselves together to a rebirth of the American spirit, working together with our common faith. We cannot fail. Thank you and good night. That's an edited version, part of President Jimmy Carter's address to the nation July 15, 1979. And I asked his domestic policy advisor from those years and our guest today on Peace Talks Radio, Stuart Eisenstadt, about those remarks. Well, he started off his major energy speech, unlike I think any president's ever addressed to his public, by saying, I want to have an unpleasant talk with you today. And he talked about how we had grown increasingly dependent on OPEC. He he saw himself almost as the bearer of bad news in order to convince the public to face up to things. We'll have more of Stu Eisenstadt's analysis of the Jimmy Carter presidency from the moment of that crisis and confidence speech of July 1979 and on through to the loss of the 1980 election to Ronald Reagan and then onward to his distinguished post-presidency when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. We're spotlighting former President Jimmy Carter on today's edition of Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and we're visiting with President Carter's former domestic policy advisor, Stu Eisenstadt, who continues his review of the Carter presidency at the time of Carter's memorable Crisis of Confidence Oval Office speech to the nation, July 15, 1979. The mood of the country at the time was a very, very difficult mood. We had just passed through uh, a Vietnam War, It was only in 1975 when that image of the last helicopter taking off from the U.S. Embassy uh, with people clinging to it sealed the image of defeat, our first real defeat abroad. The Watergate crisis uh, had really caused a tremendous shock. Uh, We had in the late 60s the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, And so it, it was a very, very difficult period. And I would say that there were several other things, Paul, uh, in terms of the the mood that have to be taken into account. The first is uh, rising inflation. This was one of our great failures, but it has to be put into context. We inherited 
inflation from uh, President Nixon and President Ford. And I do not want to suggest that we made it better. We did not. We tried jawboning, tight budgets, wage and price guidelines, uh, all sorts of tax incentives, uh, and none worked. Inflation was an underlying problem. I call it the decade of the great inflation, the 70s. But with an added twist, the economists had to come up with a new phrase never used before, stagflation, simultaneous slow growth and high unemployment and inflation. Those were supposed to be contradictory. Normally when inflation is strong, you have strong growth. And we did have strong growth, but uh, we, we had, uh, in effect, a a weakened economy by 1980 in an election year, high interest rates, high inflation, and here was one of his most courageous decisions, but it affected the mood of the country. He appointed Paul Volcker. People think Reagan did. No, Jimmy Carter appointed Paul Volcker to be the chairman of the Fed, knowing, because Volcker told him, that he was going to deal with inflation by, in effect, choking the economy by raising interest rates, by having tight money. And he was advised by his top aides, including Charlie Schultz, his top economic advisor, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, one of the best economists uh, in, uh, in, in the modern era, that this would mean his de- defeat because it would jack interest rates up. And he said, I'm willing to give up my reelection. I don't want inflation to be the ultimate legacy that I a give to the country, I've tried everything else, and nothing has worked. So that's an example, uh, but inflation clouded the mood, and the other thing that clouded the mood and made his message more difficult was Iran and the hostage crisis. 444 days, and the inability to get those hostages out uh, during his term, and literally until the inauguration, uh, Khomeini uh, stuck one last dagger in us not doing it before the election or before even the inauguration, uh, created a, an extremely negative mood. It, it did as much as anything. I would say two sides of the coin, inflation and interest rates on the one hand, Iran on the other, really created an extremely negative mood in an almost uh, uh, impossible election s- situation. Although in going into the last weekend of the election, People forget the last polls, like by Lou Harris, had us actually slightly ahead. And then on the Sunday before the Tuesday election, he made a decision, which I wish he had not made, to come back to Washington because he had gotten news that there might be a breakthrough. And that revived the whole hostage issue again, put it right in front of the people just as they were preparing to vote. Now, inside the White House, and granted you were on the domestic side of the policy advisement to President Carter, was there a sense that the administration had somehow underestimated the risks in Iran from the beginning leading up to the hostage-taking? Well, I think that uh, we, we were assured by the new government after Khomeini came in that our diplomats would be safe. And there had been two efforts by the students to breach the walls, which had been rebuffed by the Iranian police and military. And each time, the president went back to Bani Sadr, the prime minister, and got continued reassurances. What happened was that Ayatollah Khomeini finally decided he was going to throw his lot in with the students. And 
therefore, in effect, gave orders the third time uh, not to uh, not to defend them. Now, was that a mistake? Well, he let the women out first, uh, the wives and so forth. Um, could the embassy have been thinned out? It was thinned out. But we were still hoping to have some diplomatic relationship with this new government. And I think, Paul, it's important to put two things in context. Number one, with 2020 hindsight, you say, well, you know, these were a bunch of radicals, and they're radicals today in 2015. Yes, that's true. But this was the first Islamic revolution. It was a new item at that time. It was hard to know exactly with whom we were dealing. We were getting assurances from the government and not knowing the pressures and that the real authority was Ayatollah Khomeini is something that seems obvious now. It was not obvious then. But the second thing in context is what triggered the attack was allowing the Shah into the United States who had gone into exile for medical treatment. And Jimmy Carter was by all admissions the lone and last holdout to do so because he was afraid that it would trigger this kind of reaction. You know, we, we there had been in 1953 an elected Iranian government. The CIA had deposed them uh, in a coup and put the Shah back. And with the Shah coming into, uh, into uh, the U.S., the president was concerned that people would wrongly think somehow we were going to, in effect, try to get him back onto the throne. He was coming in only for medical treatment. And the president checked again with the Iranian government and said, look, he's only here for cancer treatment, nothing else. Uh, and they said, okay, we understand. But still, he was the lone holdout for fear there would be a misunderstanding. There was great outside pressure from people like Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller. His internal advisors, particularly Vance and Virginsky, uh, said, look, he's been an ally of the United States for 30 years. You, you can't keep him out from medical treatment. And it was that humanitarian concern which, in the end, uh, he said, oh, well, okay, I'll, I'll do it with the assurance by the Iranian government that, it, that they will understand. But I, it's important to know that his instincts were the right instincts. He was the one that was most concerned about it. Now, Stu, there was a famous or infamous attempt to free the hostages, some suggesting that the effort was only an additional helicopter or two away from success, which you labeled a myth. And President Carter even referenced it as such when he was revealing his cancer diagnosis to the press some years back. Yeah, I mean, you talk about courage, okay? It was an incredibly courageous effort uh, to try the hostage rescue. And the notion that, well, if we had just had one more helicopter, it would have been, been okay, and that he should have ordered more helicopters. No, he actually ordered one additional helicopter, eight, to the ones that the the, the military and the Pentagon thought were sufficient. There was a concern that if we had too many, we'd have to have a, uh, another carrier and that it would be more easily disclosed. And then just a series of incredible events, a sandstorm and so forth, uh, a series of mishaps uh, caused it. But we had people already in place. We had a special operations force in place in Tehran. They had, the guards had become very lax over time. And the plan, I think, had a real chance of success. But it was risky. Of course it was risky. But somehow the, the fact, not just that it failed, but all the mishaps that Americans were killed and 
that helicopters were, were, were somehow seen as, as the final straw as shown, showing that somehow he was weak and incompetent. Well, I mean, he didn't cause the sandstorm. This, this thing was planned by the military, and they were satisfied that it could work. And pulling the trigger and deciding to do it was a, a, a huge risk. His Secretary of State resigned over it. And one other thing that has to be said, uh, President Ford was weakened, and one of the reasons we were able to defeat him in 76 is because Ronald Reagan challenged him in the primaries and almost got the nomination. Of course, he got it in 80. But it weakened and divided the Republicans in 76. The flip side happened to us in 1980. The Kennedy challenge was enormously debilitating, very divisive. And even at the convention, which is usually the place where people come back together. There were huge floor fights over uh, a more liberal platform. Uh, the famous scene of Senator Kennedy coming uh, on the platform at the end in, in, in the most reluctant way, shaking hands with the president, uh, was enormously divisive. And so we, we came into the general election with a divided Democratic Party, and, and, and no one should underestimate the effect and influence of that debilitating challenge to the president for the Democratic nomination. He, of course, had every right to run. It's his right. It's a free country. But once he lost, he should have embraced the president and say, we had our differences, but good Lord, he's infinitely better than Ronald Reagan. He's done good things domestically. He's helped Head Start. He's, he's helped child programs. He's helped uh, with the Pell Grants. He's done good things to sustain Social Security and Medicare. He did not do that. No, Ted Kennedy did not do that. Let's spend a few minutes on Mr. Carter's post-presidency, Stuart Eisenstadt. In some ways, it superseded his time in office, and some of his humanitarian work has been quite high profile. But I'm wondering if there's a specific thing or two that you've observed him do since 1981 that especially moved you. Well, first of all, after the election, there was a post-election session after he was defeated. And some of his most important legislation, like Superfund, like the Alaska Lands Bill, like really negotiating the final agreement with Iran, although, again, they were only released uh, with inauguration, he threw himself into this. He did not mope. He did not, you know, go into a, a depression and just play out the string. Every single day of that post president of of the post election session, he was active as president and active in a positive way. With the post presidency, obviously there was a deflation. What does a guy who's in his mid fifties? We have to remember he was a young man. What does he do after you've been president and you've been defeated? And he was groping for 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 what to do, and he came up with the idea of having a presidential center that would not just be a repository for documents and a museum, that would be a living center. This was new. This had never been done before. Uh, you know, making it an active center which would reinforce some of the key elements of his presidency. So human rights, election monitoring all over the world, and th something that people may not know, and he, the election monitoring is very important, is that working with several pharmaceutical companies like Merck, uh, the Carter Center has virtually eliminated two major African diseases, guinea worm and river blindness, by simple pills that he worked to distribute, 
on a on a totally free basis to African villagers, um, and so these kinds of activities gave him a tremendous fulfillment. They kept him active and vigorous. And I came down to see him in Atlanta shortly after his uh, a cancer diagnosis. Found him to be in enormously good spirits, looking forward. He said, I'm going to go to Nepal. I saw him in, uh, in, uh, in uh, early October, and he said, in November, I'm going to Nepal. The doctor said, I can only go with a private jet, and I've gotten Delta to give it to me. So he's a man that always looked ahead, always looked ahead, never looked back. And, uh, you know, his book is entitled uh, A Full Life, written when he was 90, and he has had a full life and a great life. He was a good man, a great man, and a president who, again, had, in my opinion, enormously bad luck with inflation, with the hostage crisis, uh, but who had enormous accomplishments which have been unheralded and unrecognized and need to be. Stu Eisenstadt, I'm wondering if you can relay a personal or professional encounter that really cements President Jimmy Carter's place in your heart as this man of decency and integrity and courage. Uh, one is that uh, in 1974, he asked me to develop policy papers in his position while he was governor as a chairman of the Democratic National Committee's Congressional Campaign Committee. It was really his way of getting himself known nationally, and, and I did the policy papers for it. And, and in return, he invited myself, my parents, and, and my visiting in-laws, my, my friend's parents, uh, to a, a, a lovely lunch at the governor's mansion. It was very thoughtful. Took us on a tour, took us to the greenhouse. Second, uh, he allowed his senior staff and their families, unlike any president before or since, to use Camp David from time to time on weekends, even if he wasn't there. But one particularly touching experience when he was there is he asked my uh, oldest son, Jay, who would have been of all of perhaps, uh, you know, eight or nine years old at the time, if he would like to jog with him. And uh, he came over also to Holly Lodge when both boys were there uh, to say hello and to take pictures and to let them uh, uh, come into his uh, his own uh, uh, lodge there, that sort of personal touch. In addition, I remember being on Air Force One, coming back from our last campaign stop in 1980, from Seattle back to uh, Atlanta and then to Plains where he would vote. And Pat Cadell, his pollster, called and said, all the movement is to Reagan. We're going to lose this. The hostage crisis has come back up again. And I remember him coming out, and I embraced him, and I cried, and I said, you know, we've let you down. And he said, no, you didn't let me down. Uh, we did the best we could. So there were those kinds of personal instances. And one other personal in instance, I think, he was sometimes viewed as very cool uh, personality. But let me give you a, an example of, uh, beside the personal examples, I had worked, as I mentioned, with uh, Vice President Humphrey when he was running for president. I was his policy director in 1968. Humphrey lost, but then ran for the Senate, was elected, and became part of the leadership. So we had weekly leadership breakfasts. And Humphrey had then developed uh, uh, stomach cancer. He was going to the National Institutes of Health for 
radiation and uh, chemotherapy. And, and President Carter would, would reschedule the times of the leadership breakfasts so that Hubert could get his, uh, his cancer treatments. And then when he was clearly failing, Jimmy Carter did something quite am amazing. Uh, he, he said to then-Senator Humphrey, uh, I understand from Vice President Mondale that you've never been to Camp David. He said, I can't believe that. You were vice president for, for four years with Johnson. He said, Mr. President, I've never been to Camp David. Johnson never invited me. Never have I been. And he, and he said, well, you're going to go now. And he arranged for him to come to the Oval Office. He had him sit behind the president's desk, and he said, you should have been sitting here yourself. They took a helicopter up to Camp David, and they spent the day and evening at Camp David together. It was the first and only time Humphrey was ever at Camp David, and it showed his humanity. Now, finally, Stu, our program is about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution and strategies and key figures in that tradition throughout history. How do you view Jimmy Carter through a peacemaking lens? Yes, well, I mean, he took great pride in the fact that no soldier— died in combat on his, uh, in, in his term. He actually built the military up after Vietnam. He, he had 3% real increases in defense spending. But he was very careful about not injecting American troops uh, where they could not be helpful and, again, took great pride in, in that. Um, he, he negotiated the SALT Treaty, Panama Canal Treaty, uh, Human Rights, the Middle East Treaty. All of these were great peacemaking efforts. He was a peacemaker. He followed that in his post-presidency. But, you know, if there's one word that would describe the foreign policy of Jimmy Carter, it was peacemaking. Peacemaking with Panama, peacemaking with China normalization, peacemaking with Egypt and Israel. All of these really exemplified his emphasis on peacemaking. And he won a Nobel Prize for this, I think, belatedly, but he won it. Stuart Eisenstadt was President Jimmy Carter's chief domestic policy advisor and executive director of the White House domestic policy staff during the Carter presidency. He's author of the book, Jimmy Carter, The White House Years, published in 2018 by Thomas Dunn Books. Stu Eisenstadt, thanks for sharing your memories of President Carter with us today on Peace Talks Radio. Thank you, Paul, for uh, your interest in doing this for really a a great man, and for uh, a, a president who, again, was much more successful than people realize and, and had a very consequential four years in office. You can hear this program again and get more information at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our January 2020 episode. You can also support our nonprofit organization there, peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening.